Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. Winter is coming. Heavy rain, sleet, snow, and ice. Are your tires up for the challenge? Tread confidently in winter's worst with a set of new tires from Tire Rack. They sell only the best, like the full line of Redestine tires. Go to TireRack.com slash sports. Tell them what you drive. Your tires will ship fast and free to you or one of over 10,000 recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. This is the best of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. Well, boys and girls, what an unbelievable conclusion. We finally got a great game in the NBA Finals. Unfortunately, if you were a Cleveland Cavalier fan, it was gut-wrenching. Kevin Garnett, Kevin Garnett, Kevin Durant reached into your chest and pulled out your still-beating heart just when it appeared that the Cavs were going to put everything they had into Game 3 and get a must-have win at home to make this somewhat of a series, to put a lot of pressure on Game 4 and try to make their effort to get it even as they prepared to return to Golden State, Kevin Durant became legendary. Kevin Durant down the stretch, seven straight points to take the lead for his team, against LeBron James's team, and I think for a long time, for a very long time to come, we will be talking about that walk-up three that Kevin Durant hit right in LeBron James's face to take a one-point lead because I think it was emblematic of everything that Kevin Durant has endured over the years, everything that people have said about him not being able to win a championship, about how he went and joined a team of supermen in order to try to win his first championship, I got to tell you this. Guys, he's been the alpha male on the court for the Golden State Warriors in these finals. He's gone over 33 times, and for everybody out there who didn't believe Kevin Durant could hit the big shot at the big time in the big stage, he did it. He put away the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, I know there's still one game left, and I know the Cavs came back from a 3-1 deficit last year, and I know J.R. Smith already sent out a tweet that said, Cavs in seven, but this series is over. I would be very surprised if the Warriors don't win the game Friday, and I would be stunned beyond belief in the event that somehow the Cavs managed to get a win in game four 
be stunned beyond belief if the Warriors don't go home for Game 5 and end this thing. I mean, that's exactly how I feel. I think that's the way the vast majority of you feel. But So I had several different thoughts that I jotted down as I was watching last night's game, and I'm going to work through them with you. Then I'll go to the crew out in L.A. and here in Nashville with me, and I will also open up the phone line to allow you guys to react here on Thursday as it appears the NBA Finals are basically over. The Durant shot. LeBron James, it's easy to criticize LeBron James for making the pass to Kyle Korver, for being out there and not willing or able to score in the final 428 of regulation. I think that misses the point. The big issue here is that LeBron James has to go all out every minute of the game that he's in it from the moment the game begins until the end of the game to keep his team even close. He cannot coast in any way. He can't take minutes off. He can't just stand on the court and relax. In the fourth quarter, LeBron James had nothing left. And the reason why he had nothing left was because he had to put everything he had into this game to make sure that the Warriors didn't create a working margin. I mean, did you watch that first quarter? The Cavs shot 61% and were down by seven points at the end of the quarter. The Warriors can get so hot so quickly that even if you're playing extremely well against them, things can fall apart almost in a hurry, almost in an instant. And so to me, what that reflected, I thought was emblematic of more than anything else, was on that final defensive set when LeBron did not get up and contest the Kevin Durant three. I think he was caught flat-footed, but I think he was caught flat-footed on that three because, one, he probably didn't think Kevin Durant had the killer instinct to come down and immediately attempt that three. Two, I think his legs were leaden. I think he was tired. I think he was not ready and able to even get his hands up. You go back and watch that. LeBron Alford, absolutely no contest of that shot because I think he was tired. I think he was worried about Kevin Durant trying to go past him and his ability to respond athletically. And there was just nothing left there. Several other additional thoughts. Are the Warriors the best team ever? This comeback makes them the only team in the history of the NBA, the NHL, or Major League Baseball to go 15-0 and in a postseason. Think about how wild that is. To win 15 straight postseason games is an insanely difficult task that has never been equaled by any team in Major League Baseball, the NHL, or the NBA. We are watching a level of history that those of us out there who are NBA fans and those of us who are just casual basketball fans have never seen and may never see again. It is unheard of to go 15-0 and in the playoffs. And you can point to the fact that Zaza stepped underneath of Kawhi Leonard and the Spurs were winning game one in that series and they've had to have some big plays and big shots, but that's the truth of anybody. The fact that you get to 15-0 and at all, the fact that 15 different times your NBA team has taken the court and been better than the opponent is never happened before, not just in the NBA, but in the NHL or Major League Baseball. This is an extraordinary accomplishment. I think that for the years to come, if they can get to 16-0, and if these Warriors can get to 16-0, and people will talk about 16-0 and in the playoffs to go 4-4-4-4. Four, 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 four. four different times, you didn't just win, but you swept your opponents. And remember, they're coming out of the toughest division in the NBA, the Western Conference, and they played a lot of high-caliber teams. And it looks like the Warriors are going to sweep the defending champs, the Cleveland Cavaliers. I believe that it's going to end on Friday. Andre Iguodala. 
down the stretch there after they go up three. LeBron is attempting a three, and Iguodala gets his revenge over LeBron with a great defensive play of his own. He strips the ball from him and avoids allowing LeBron to attempt that game-tying shot. And that, to me, kind of flashed back to last season when LeBron made his own extraordinary play on Iguodala. Now, granted, it was game seven when LeBron made his block, but this game, this time, is, to me, pretty good revenge for Iguodala over LeBron for that block. I would also point out the difference between this year and last year in the finals. Last year in the finals, in game seven, LeBron had enough energy left to get down the court full speed and block that Iguodala drive. You guys remember that? It's the block. It's famous. It's going to live forever as part of the lore of LeBron James. He did that very, very late in the game, in game seven. Last night, LeBron James, to say nothing of a block, didn't even have the energy to contest a Kevin Durant walk-up three. That's because this year's Warriors are a lot better than last year's Warriors team. Final thought that I had, after in retrospect, and I put up a poll question on this, if you're a Cleveland sports fan or you're just a sports fan in general, what was the more brutal made shot in the city of Cleveland? Was it Michael Jordan rising up over Craig Elo, hanging in the air and draining a jumper in game five of the first round that really cemented Jordan's legacy and until LeBron brought a title to Cleveland last year, also reinforced the degree to which Cleveland basketball was just never quite good enough? Or was it this one, which happens in the NBA Finals with your team up in the third game, trying to avoid a sweep, and more importantly, trying to make this a series when Kevin Durant walked up on that three and drained it right in front of LeBron James. I think you can make a strong argument that was a moment in time that will echo forever among basketball fans, not just for the significance of the Warriors going up 3-0, not just for the significance of the of the Golden State Warriors slaying the demon of the 3-1 to lead that they gave up last year in the NBA Finals, but because I think in the years ahead we will look at that shot as the moment that Kevin Durant began to, if he hasn't already, surpass Michael Jordan as, as Michael Jordan, LeBron James as the greatest basketball player of all time. Sorry, of all time right now. Greatest current basketball player. I messed that up because I was thinking about LeBron James versus Michael Jordan, which is the final thought that I wanted to make. LeBron James's resume is over. If you are a guy who wants to get out there and argue that LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan, that aspect of the debate is now set in stone. I don't believe that LeBron James is ever going to win another title. I think if you look at these Golden State Warriors, for the next couple of years, they're going to be the best team in the NBA. LeBron James is 32 right now. You saw Durant at 28. I think Durant is going to still ascend. I think that LeBron James is on the descent of his career. The question is, how quickly will he descend? Next year, he will be 33. The year after, 34. I don't think it's likely that in either of those years, he wins a title. I think he's going to stick at three unless he plays a ring chaser as his final role in the NBA. Is LeBron James going to simply try to go join a super team and be one of the guys as opposed to the guy when he's 34, 35, 36 years old? Maybe, but that's going to be a lot different than the current situation that we have in front of us now. What did I miss? What additionally do you want to add? Am I correct? 
in my thought process here that the Golden State Warriors right now, assuming they close it out on Friday, are the greatest team in the history of the NBA. We've been hinting at it for a little while. I said if they got to 3-0 and then 4-0 to go 16-0, in my opinion, they would be better than the 95-96 Bulls team that went 72-10, and that went 15-3 and in the playoffs. It looks like the Warriors are going to go 83-15. and That would mean that they're just a couple of games worse than the Chicago Bulls in the loss column, and obviously they rested more guys in the regular season than the Bulls did that year. I think this year's Warriors team would win. I think this year's Warriors team would win head-to-head against that 95-96 Bulls team. We'll take your calls. We'll continue to unpack this. We will have a discussion about whether LeBron versus Michael Jordan is officially over. Is that debate over? Is LeBron done chasing the ghost of Michael Jordan? I think so. I think LeBron's three titles and NBA Finals appearances are going to have to be his final statement. I think his most compelling aspect of his resume is in the books. It's coming back from the 3-1 deficit and bringing a title to Cleveland, which ain't nothing, but certainly Michael Jordan never got swept in the finals. Certainly Michael Jordan did not disappear for the final four minutes and 28 seconds like LeBron James did last night. Certainly Michael Jordan did not allow somebody to walk right into a three-point shot to take a one-point lead in a basically clincher game of a series. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. With everybody obsessed with talking about LeBron James versus Michael Jordan. And over the space of three games, we've changed the story in this way. One, the primary storyline has shifted from LeBron James versus Michael Jordan to are the Warriors the greatest basketball team of all time? And that somewhat implicates Michael Jordan because we're discussing that in the context of the 95-96 Bulls team, which went 87-13, 72-10 in the regular season, 15-3 in the postseason, and honestly is the best team in the NBA from a win percentage perspective. The Cavs, uh, the sorry, the Warriors, it appears, are going to end 83-15. I think they're going to win on Friday and sweep to end this series. The Jordan-era Bulls team went 87-13, and 13, so there's not very much difference there. Um, to me, again, the Warriors are going to be the best. Uh, the second part is, has Kevin Durant passed LeBron James? I think this walk-up three for a long time to come is going to be emblematic of that torch passing in some sense. You could also say the reason why Kevin Durant had the energy to make the plays late in the fourth quarter that he did is because he didn't have to put every ounce of energy into those games before they actually happen. But to me, the biggest takeaway here is the LeBron James versus Michael Jordan argument, which we're going to have some fun with later in this show where I play both sides of the argument because that seems to be the way that people want to make their name for themselves now is arguing this. It's over. LeBron's resume is complete. I don't think LeBron James is going to add any championships here. I don't think he's suddenly going to be better than he is right now at the age of 32. The LeBron James resume is mostly complete, and it is inferior to the Michael Jordan resume. It's a great resume. I think they're 1A, 1B, but Michael Jordan is and will always be the greatest basketball player in the history of the world, and LeBron James will be playing second fiddle to him. Not bad. 
to be the second best in the world at something. But I don't believe that LeBron James now is ever going to rise to that level. I think the peak of the Michael Jordan versus LeBron James argument came with LeBron James coming back from a 3-1 to series deficit. Frankly, if the Cavs lose that series, I think even LeBron people out would not even be making an argument at all. I think that's the only thing that allowed that conversation to happen. LeBron James bringing a championship from, to Cleveland and coming back from a 3-1 to series deficit against a team that the Golden State Warriors that had gone 73-9 and in the regular season. But I think this year's Warriors team was so upset that they feel like they gave away a title that they wanted to eliminate all doubt. They wanted to grind their boot heel into the face of LeBron James, and they have done it. We have loaded lines. I'm going to roll around to you guys and get your feedback. Let's go first to Tim in Florida. Hey, Clay. How's it going? Um, I think the torch was definitely passed last night. Um, You know, Kevin Durant is the perfect basketball player. He has no weaknesses. And LeBron James has a couple of glaring weaknesses. Number one, he's asked to do too much, and uh, he's tired by the end of the game. And number two is, you know, LeBron's teammates have really let him down. You know, Thompson and Kevin Love, I mean, that was just ridiculous. And, um, yeah, the comparisons with Michael Jordan, that, that needs to just go away. That was ridiculous. But, anyway, I'll hang up and listen. Have a great day. Appreciate the call. I would say, you know, for the the box score situation, the box score viewers out there, and I know that a lot of you will go back and look at the box score. You realize Tristan Thompson has been out-rebounded by by, uh, Steph Curry in this series? I don't believe Tristan Thompson has scored in the series. Am I correct in that, Jason Martin? Can you confirm that Tristan Thompson, who is making like $17 million a year, played 23 minutes last night? had three rebounds, no points. You know, there was talk that he was going to be the fourth guy in the big four, and he had absolutely nothing left. And by the way, for LeBron James, I like to look in the box score. LeBron James played 46 minutes last night. Too many minutes. This is maybe where Tyron Lue doesn't have any impact, that LeBron James is basically a player coach. Next most minutes on the court, Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant played 41 minutes. How much better could LeBron James have been down the stretch if he was rested for just a couple more minutes now you can also say well the Cavs wouldn't have even been in the game and that's the downside that's the downside of this situation but Tristan Thompson I don't believe has scored in this series no that's not true how many points has he scored he had eight points on Sunday is that it yeah he hasn't scored the other two games but yeah so he's points not Sunday. he scored he's averaging whatever the math is on that two point whatever eight divided by three is it's always a danger zone for me to be doing math here and he has clearly been out-rebounded by Steph Curry, right? I mean, he had three rebounds last night. Steph Curry so far has uh, – I think Steph Curry had double-digit rebounds last night. I he mean, only has he, 11 for the series. He had four in the first two games each. That gave him eight. Then he had three last night. And that's that's completely unacceptable. So, all right, so Thompson. the easy way to put that is Steph Curry last night had more rebounds than Tristan Thompson has in the entire series so far. Steph Curry last night had 13 rebounds. How in the world can a six foot four, whatever whatever Steph Curry is listed at, six three, no normal sized dude, a tiny guy on the court relative to most, not playing inside, end up with more rebounds last night than your big man who's supposed to be a rebounder did that entire game. Steph Curry's rebounds, Kevin Love got a ton of rebounds, right, on the offensive side of the floor. Now Kevin Love was awful shooting one for nine. Couldn't make any shots. But Kevin Love at least got 13 rebounds. Steph Curry was the tied for the most rebounds in the game last night with Kevin Love. 
it's probably going to go underreported, under under analyzed. That was a hell of a uh, of a game. And Steph Curry's been rebounding the basketball great this entire series. Let's go to Chris in Augusta, Georgia. Chris, what's up? Hey, uh, just wanted to pipe in on the Jordan Lebron. Uh, I'm 44 years old. Can't believe I'm even talking like like this. But man, Lebron, his skill set. I, I really think uh, from a from a pure basketball offensive standpoint. He is every bit as good as Jordan. And I saw Jordan play in the playoffs, saw him play live, you know, a couple times in my life. Huge Jordan fan. But here's where Jordan separates himself, is that in the in the clutch moments of the game, Jordan was a finisher. And he never, everybody on the Bulls team knew in the last minute of the game, even as great as Kyrie was last night, in the last minute of the game, it didn't matter how great a game Pippen had had, in a one-point game with less than a minute left, Jordan was going to have the ball in his hands on that play and he was going to finish it. And then the possession earlier where he kicked the Corver. I totally disagree with your assessment of that. Yes, he did kick the Paxson and all those guys, Hodges and all those guys, but not in that moment. In that moment, Jordan would have finished at the rim, got fouled. He would have finished that game last night with a win. There's no way Jordan would have lost that game last night. And to me, that's what settles the Jordan-LeBron argument. I think physically – you know, you got to – I think I may even give the edge to LeBron as much as it pains LeBron me to is, say that. LeBron is a better athlete than Michael Jordan was. He's bigger, stronger, right. faster. He can do more things. I appreciate the call. What he did not do is he doesn't have the same killer instinct. The closest thing we've seen to a killer instinct that's similar to Michael Jordan in the NBA was Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant, no way in hell. If you go back and watch that possession where he kicks to Kyle Korver, it's the right play to kick to Kyle Korver there – but before he goes left, LeBron James, for an instant, has the ability to go right there. Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan would have both gone right and gone right at the basket down one in that situation. Not to say that once he went left, the pass to Corver wasn't the right one. It was. It was the high ba- basketball IQ play. It was the percentage play. You got your shooter posted up there in the corner with a good look to potentially put you up two. I think he would do that over and over again. But I think if if LeBron went back and watched that final play, there is an opportunity. You can slow it down. If you still got it on DVR, you can go back and watch the highlight. There is an opportunity to go right to the basket that he has that he doesn't take advantage of. Doug in Evansville, Indiana. Jordan and, Le- and Jordan and Kobe would have taken advantage of that, would have gone to the basket and tried to win the game right there. Doug in Evansville, Indiana. Hey, Clay, love the show. I just want to know if the Cavs can compete with the Warriors if they trade love for Paul George and Jordan was an assassin on the court. I'll hang up and listen. No, I, I don't think it makes that much of a difference. I, I really don't. I mean, I think there is no one out there, no single player, I don't believe, I don't believe there's a single player in the NBA that you can replace Kevin Love with and contend with this year's Warriors team. Because even if you do that, if you do it with Carmelo Anthony, if you do it with Paul George, it doesn't matter who's out there. I don't think you have the ability then to still put together a trio. To me, Kevin Love is a convenient scapegoat, but at least he's going to give you some rebounding. At least he's going to give you a little bit of stuff other than just scoring, even when his scoring disappears. Carmelo Anthony can score, but is he going to defend anybody? Is scoring the issue that the Cavs have had in this series? It's not being able to stop the Warriors from scoring more so than their own point totals. Look at the point totals the Cavs have posted. They've been scoring plenty of points. Offensively is not their issue. They just can't stop the Warriors. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Really big surprise. 
We haven't even talked about it yet because this news broke on Wednesday afternoon, yesterday, came out of nowhere. I don't think anybody saw it coming. Bob Stoops, big-time successful Oklahoma head football coach, steps down. Now, I had him as one of the top ten coaches in college football beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know it was in vogue to criticize Bob Stoops, to call him Big Game Bob because he didn't win enough. Guy won ten titles in the Big 12 during his tenure. He won a national title in his second year there. And he was bringing back Baker Mayfield, obviously big-time Heisman Trophy candidate at quarterback, as well as pretty much dominating the Big 12 for his entire tenure there. And this decision came out of nowhere. Now, my first thought when I saw it, and you can go watch my reaction. I was doing Outkick the Show, the afternoon show I do on Periscope and Facebook Live without any, uh, without any FCC restrictions, reacting to the big stories of the day that have happened since we finished this morning show. My first thought was this had to be connected to the Joe Mixon video coming out. The Joe Mixon video where he broke a girl's uh, face in multiple places. Uh, Bob Stoops allows him to stay on the team. It's a huge story surrounding the Sugar Bowl and Oklahoma's performance against Auburn. To me, it had to be somewhat connected. You just don't see a guy at 56 years old in June suddenly decide to step down and hand the reins to his successor, Lincoln Riley, now taking over a 33-year-old offensive coordinator. If I am a fan of Oklahoma State, if I am Mike Gundy, if I am a fan of the Texas Longhorns, if I am Tom Herman, I am ecstatic. You know Oklahoma is going to be good. The difference, though, between good and great is often substantial. Whether you liked all of the results in big games or not, Bob Stoops was great at Oklahoma. He won 80% of his games overall. We have never, ever, never, ever seen a coach hired who has ended up doing better than 80% to replace a coach who had gone 80%. The only other example that this has worked out, you know, whether it's Texas with Mac Brown leaving, whether it's Tennessee with Phil Fulmer leaving, everybody believes that it's easy to replace a guy who has won at a high level if he hasn't won multiple championships. The only place where this has really worked out is with Bobby Bowden leaving and being replaced by Jimbo Fisher. Florida State is the only school that has ever managed to replace a coach who won 75% of his games with another coach who won 75% of his games or better. That transition is difficult. As good as Lincoln Riley is, the odds of him having anywhere near the success that Bob Stoops had are low. Here was Bob Stoops talking about his decision to step down. I didn't want to miss the right opportunity to be able to step away and hand, it, and, and hand this baton off to, uh, to, to Lincoln Riley and to help keep this, this all just going in, in, a, in a great direction. After 18 and a half years, when is the right time? We're in a we're in a cycle yearly that never stops, and and it isn't. Um, and then if that thought comes to you, whenever it is, after 18 and a half years, do you act on it immediately, or do you weigh it, and do you, well, is that really what I want to do? Or there isn't a good time. That's the bottom line. And uh, just here lately, really in the last week and a half, I knew it was the right right thing to do for me personally, and the right thing to do moving forward for the you know for the program and and for the university that this was this would be a positive thing this is shocking not just because bob stoops given his success winning almost 80 percent of his games over that entire length of time it's the time frame when a coach leaves in an april may june 
time frame. It's usually Bobby Petrino getting caught with his motorcycle accident with a with a hot blonde on the back with him and then lying about it to his athletic director. It's usually Jim Tressel at Ohio State getting fired for NCAA-related infractions. It's never a coach voluntarily, voluntarily stepping away. Bob Stoops has gone out in some way on top, leaving behind a very talented roster, but I don't think Bob Stoops is done. He's only 56 years old, and kind of putting that into context for you, that's about the same age Nick Saban was when he got to Alabama a decade ago. Nick Saban is 65 years old right now. Imagine what Nick Saban's resume would have looked like as a head coach if when he left the Miami Dolphins, he had just stopped coaching. Because that's effectively what Bob Stoops is doing by stepping away at the age of 56 years old. To me, he's out there, assuming he's healthy, and there seems to be a little bit of concern about his health. His dad died at a young age. Assuming that Bob Stoops is healthy and wants to coach again, I think there are going to be a lot of schools making a call to him along with Chip Kelly this coming off up off season. There are a lot of big-name programs, certainly in the SEC, whether where Bob Stoops has been successful as a defensive coordinator at Florida, maybe even at Florida, depending on what happens with McIlwain, but certainly Tennessee, Texas A&M, Arkansas, Auburn, all of them, if things went awry, could be looking for new football coaches, not to mention Notre Dame. Notre Dame and Brian Kelly will see whether or not something happens there. Uh, there are obviously also a lot of other big jobs among them, UCLA, that could theoretically be coming open. I would think that's a call you've got to make to Bob Stoops. Remember, Bob Stoops just bought his second home in Chicago. Maybe there's a Big Ten level a school. That's why Notre Dame potentially has some appeal to me. I don't think that Bob Stoops is done coaching. I would be stunned if he is going to hang up right now the whistle and never coach again at the age of 56. What this does for college football is pretty massive. Right now, there are only a handful of coaches that have ever won national championships in college football. Nick Saban and Urban Meyer stand and dominate over college football, unlike two coaches anywhere else in any other sports. I mean, they dominate everything about college football right now. Dabo finally got into the club and won his first championship this past year, and Jimbo Fisher has obviously won a championship as well. Guys, there are only four head coaches right now that have won national championships in college football. That's how hard it is to do with Nick Saban and Urban Meyer having created the the dynasties that they have at Ohio State and Alabama. Jimbo Fisher has done incredibly well at Florida State. He's got a title. Dabo obviously has done incredibly well at Clemson. But if Clemson doesn't come back in that game, you're talking about college football suddenly only having three guys who have titles. Only four guys with titles is pretty extraordinary. We'll see what the future holds for Oklahoma, but I would be stunned if it's as good as the past has been with Bob Stoops. Not to say Lincoln Riley's not going to be good, but if I'm a University of Texas fan, if I am a Oklahoma State fan, and certainly if I'm TCU, Texas Tech, Baylor, any of those other fan bases in the Big 12, this is a monumental time for the Big 12 to have Bob Stoops stepping down. It's an opportunity for you to elevate your program with a new young guy taking over. Lincoln Riley may be good, but it's highly unlikely he's going to be as good as Bob Stoops. Up next, we've got John Morosi. He's going to tell us all about some of these performances that have been going on in Major League Baseball, as well as break down Game 5 of Preds and Penguins going on tonight. Maybe we'll also ask him if he was up late last night watching Game 3 of the NBA Finals, like I know all of you are. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app. We bring in John Morosi. He knows a little bit about everything 
And in particular, he's an expert on Major League Baseball right now and the NHL. But I got to ask him, I'm curious. You have so many games to watch. Do you watch the NBA Finals? Like, were you watching last night, Game 3, late at night, John? Clay, I'll be honest with you, my friend. I have not watched a minute of the NBA playoffs all spring. Well, I understand that Uh, because the NHL, there's games going on at the same time. But this is one of those rare times where there's not actually a game going on. And I bet you probably on some level are glad when you finally get to the NHL Finals. I know a lot of writers are because then you don't have to watch as many games. A part of me, as much as I love the NBA Finals and the NHL, is looking forward to those games ending so I don't have to stay up till midnight every night, you know, <laughs> watching these games to then turn around and, and wake up early in the morning to talk about them. You know, I'm looking forward right. to, like, just no. being able to sleep a normal night's sleep, at least somewhat. Very good point, Clay. And I'll say this, too, about, about baseball. That, you know, certainly, and having that be my primary focus uh, of, of that sport, there are so many games. And we, we've talked about before about how, that makes it somewhat unique for baseball as a challenge for the game to, to find ways to make each individual game on a, on a Wednesday night in the, in the month of June, what stands out about a baseball night. And so for me, getting ready for, for sort of the, the shows I do every day on MLB Network to make sure that I'm up on things, you, you are moving around and, and watching as many games as you can. And even like last night, for example, I'm downtown Detroit watching the Angels and Tigers, but you've got to always be aware of, the other 14 games going on. So, so that, that's uh, certainly one challenge of baseball. And, and uh, you want to be immersed in the game you're watching, but there are certainly a lot of other events going on in that particular sport that night. But uh, but no, it, it is, uh, in many respects, like a fantastic time of year to be watching sports. How many, how many hours a day do you think you watch baseball? Great question. Uh, it, it depends on... Uh, probably depends on the day depends on the time of year depends on if i'm at a game but i would say three to four live uh you know every, every day uh, at, the, at the very least you're kind of surfing around and and i will i'll say for me honestly it's not just i'm not just saying it because i work in the network but when you watch mlb network late in the evening uh, especially you watch Quick Pitch, which Heidi Watney hosts every night. You get a chance to watch that one-hour show that has every single game that happened that night recapped for you. It's a very nice way to, to make sure that whether it's late at night or early in the morning, that you're aware of basically everything that's happened, even if you happen to be at a particular game that sort of was, was locking you in on two particular teams. What's interesting, uh, the reason why I bring that up is obviously I love college football and the NFL, and for college football Saturday, for instance, I will start at you know noon Eastern, and I will go all the way to like two two a.m. sometimes Eastern time, watching the late right. night West Coast Pac-12 game that finishes. So I mean, there are literally days I watch fourteen hours of college football, like everything all day. Now I'm flipping around watching a bunch of different games, and then the next day you wake up on the NFL. And I'm a Tennessee Titans fan, so i got to watch the Titans, but I also watch the Red Zone channel, so I'll watch sure. the NFL for six hours or whatever it is, and I'm drained by the time I get to Monday. Like, I think there's a lot of people like me who, you know, now you got Thursday college football, uh, Thursday in the NFL, college football and the NFL Thursday night. Friday, you're going to start to add some Big Ten games. There's going to be more college football. A lot of people go to high school football games. Saturday, you watch games all day. Sunday, you watch games. By Monday... There's so many times on Monday Night Football where I'm like, I'm just, you know, I'm footballed out, you know, and I think, you know, you kind of mentioned that about about baseball. We have that impression about there being so many baseball games, but football has got to be careful, I think, in terms of just putting so much out there 
that it becomes difficult for the average fan, and I, I'm certainly, I think, an average fan, to be able to watch and keep up with as many games as they would want. You know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, that's five straight days of football. That's a challenge for a lot of people if you have a life, if you got a job, if you got a lot of other responsibilities. Very good point. And, and for me, Clay, it's interesting. I, uh, you know, we're both very lucky to work in sports uh, and have this be our, our jobs. And I think that sometimes we forget, as, as you point out, um, that, that we, we can spend our time on this and, and, and never feel as though uh, we're wasting our time because we, this is both something we love doing, but also something that we are somewhat obligated to do. And, and as you point out, um, it, it's amazing how, with the way that TV has worked nowadays, I mean, how, how much the sports have been spread very thin uh, as, as all the, the product has been sort of spread across the week. But it's a very good point about football, and it's, and it's one thing that baseball really, I think, is, is challenged with. For example, let's take yesterday. Uh, huge marquee matchup in baseball. Kershaw, Strasburg, two first-place teams at Dodger Stadium. A massive matchup, rematch of the division series from last year. So if that were football, it would be the Sunday night game, if you will, or the Monday night game, if you will. It would be a very prominent matchup that everybody had a chance to watch. Well, because of the uniqueness of the baseball schedule and even the basic agreement between the MLB and the union, that game starts at noon Pacific time on a Wednesday. So the attendance, I believe, was certainly still good for a day game in L.A., but it was not, uh, and it was actually on national TV, on MLB Network, but it was at 3 o'clock Eastern time, uh, noon Pacific, in terms of its national broadcast on MLB Network. So it's a very interesting timing issue, and the reason why is that the Nationals, they have a game this evening um, back home in, in D.C., and so if you have to travel three time zones, you need a certain amount of, amount of hours in between your previous game and your game on this particular night, and that's why they couldn't have played that one at nighttime to get the maximum audience uh, TV-wise in, in both cities and, of course, across the country. So th- there are those structural issues where when you've got a game either six or seven days a week, Clay, you've, you've got to make different allocations in the schedule that run counter to putting your product in front of the most eyeballs you possibly can. Scooter Jeanette, I believe that's how you pronounce it because I'm not even familiar yes. with the guy's name, and I bet there's a lot of other people out there who don't even know this guy's name at all. Four home runs on Tuesday night and whatever it was, like some insane number amount of RBIs. Where does this rank on the most improbable offensive performances that you have seen in recent baseball history? It is the most improbable. <laughs> I would say that. that, that certainly uh, in, the, in the context of a, a regular season game and just the sheer bulk of what he did. Uh, the, the Elias Sports Bureau reported this. Uh, uh, Trent Rosencrantz tweeted it, I believe, that the night of the, uh, of the feat for Jeanette. He was the first player ever, ever in Major League history with four home runs, five hits, and ten RBIs in a single game, with that being your line. So so four homers, five hits, ten ribbies had never happened before in the game's history. Here's a 16th-round pick from Sarasota, Florida. What a great story. And I think it does illustrate that we talk about how we experience the game and and how – we follow the, the sports that we love. This is one of those cases where baseball can, can hold up the Scooter Jeanette game and say, this is why we love the game. This is why you should go to the ballpark. Because in this sport, there, there is that, that chance at the 
truly rare moment that really stands out. When you think about maybe the comparison to football, uh, if, if someone's going to set an individual rushing record uh, in a game or, or, or pick, pick your uh, various statistical category, uh, if you set the rushing record in, in the NFL, let's say, for a particular game, it, it won't necessarily look all that different, I don't think, like as it's unfolding with, with the drama. And you may not even really be aware of it in, in the stands if, as the player's going, if he's going up above 275 or whatever that number might be. But in baseball, if you're paying attention to the game, if you know somebody's hit three homers, you are locked in that next at bat because you, you know that four homers is really rare. And, and so I think that's, that's one thing about, about the way a baseball game flows, that you have those natural pauses. We had the moment of Albert Pujols over the weekend, 600 home runs, which was phenomenal and I think deserved even more attention than it got. Uh, I think that's one thing baseball still does have in its favor is, is that pause that ability to say, hey, kind of elbow your friend next to you, like, listen, we, we got to watch this thing because he, he is going for history in some way. So uh, Jeanette's feat was amazing, as was Albert. And, and I think, uh, you know, Albert really, on, in many ways, Clay, it's important to remember, Albert Bulls becomes the ninth different player to hit 600 home runs. There are more people who have walked on the moon than have hit 600 homers in Major League Baseball. I mean, th- that is a remarkable feat, and for Albert – Someone who is, who is, in my view and the view of many, uh, always done things the right way, deserves a lot of respect and a lot of recognition for what he did last weekend. Game five tonight, Preds, Penguins in Pittsburgh. What happens? Nashville wins. Clay, Nashville's been the better team in this series. We, we, we talked last week about uh, how, what the Preds had to do to get themselves back on track. Uh, they were so committed to their game plan, and they were so precise in it uh, in games three and four. And remember, they have outshot the Penguins in all four games of the series. Um, there was there was that late, there was the early flurry for Pittsburgh in, in game one, and then, of course, they were able to, to take the lead late. Um, game game two, it was it was the late, the, the third period that sort of ch- that really changed and flipped on the Preds. But for the most part, they've been they've been – clearly the better team, I think, in this series. And, and so that they've now established their game. There's now no doubt uh, about whether it's Pecorine or, or the Preds in general about their worthiness to be on the ice with the defending Stanley Cup champion. The Predators have been the better team. I expect it's going to come out again tonight. Remember, it was last series, same storyline, if you will, tied 2-2. They win on the road. They clinch it at home. And if I'm a Preds fan right now, Clay, and, and you're living it right now in Nashville, I've, I've got to think there is an uncommon level of optimism about Game 5 on the road because uh, Nashville fans have seen their team do it just in the very last round, and they have all the momentum now going into Game 5 in Pittsburgh. Outstanding stuff as always. John Morosi, we'll talk to you next week. Appreciate the time. Sounds great, Clay. We, we literally touched on every single major sport in our country, my friend. That was, that was a, <laughs> a fun conversation as always. Thanks again for having me. That is John Morosi. We did, we did. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Ladies and gentlemen. I'm just glad I was there. Boys and girls. I thought he thought I was like this ginormous piece of chicken. Dying times here. This is Animal Thunderdome. Jason Martin, take it away. 
We go to Orlando, Florida, where a local pilot hit an 11-foot alligator crossing the runway at Orlando Executive Airport. We were Wait, told an airplane p- hit an alligator? Yes, and that wouldn't necessarily be Animal Thunderdome news until you hear some of the details. The pilot was flying a Navajo, and the gator jumped up and struck the wing during the landing. This gator tried to attack the airplane in the air as it was trying to land. The gator killed instantly. The aircraft did sustain wing damage. It was called one of the craziest things that this pilot has ever seen in all his years in aviation. And get this. It's the fourth alligator versus airplane incident to take place in Florida in the last 10 years. Alligators are getting hit by airplanes? <laughs> That's a tough way They're to go. They're attacking airplanes. Uh, you know... An 11-foot gator is massive. Yes. And the fact that he went after the airplane, bad move. Wasn't there, what was that movie with, like, uh, Betty White in it, I think, where they had the killer alligators that they fed that were, like, gigantic, supersized alligators? Anybody remember that? And, like, there was a scene where the alligator attacked the plane. It was, like, a plane that was landing on the water. Lake Placid. Lake Placid. That's like Lake Placid. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Am I the only one who saw Lake Placid? Yeah, it's terrible. Oh, it's an awful movie. It's Terrible. But the alligators are really big there, and they do, I believe, bring down a full airplane in that movie. So uh, there you go. It's like real life, like Lake Placid brought to life. Not we were good. talking yesterday about these alligators and how they're kind of getting froggy out there. You know, they're walking around in this, suburbs for a year. This is what happens. The alligators have gotten cocky because they used to be on the endangered species list, and then now they're just everywhere. I mean, they're fighting airplanes. They're going on people's balconies. Like, they're getting into everybody's pool. Uh, the, the, the war between the alligator and the, I, I think I said yesterday, right? I said the bear and the alligator seem to be leading the animal Thunderdome charge. I don't think there's any doubt. Like every time I hear a different alligator story, it's wild. But attacking an airplane when it was landing is up there on the most unbelievable things that we've ever seen an alligator do. I think this might be the first cattle-related story that we've had in the Australian Even the cows Alps. are rising up against us? Apparently. In the Australian Alps, a hiker fatally gored. This is kind of sad. When a cow charged at her, the victim and a friend walking their dogs in pasture land in the Tyrol region of the Alps when the attack happened, this was yesterday, according to local news there, the other person said one or several cows charged and killed the hiker. You know, I just didn't know cows charged and killed people, but this apparently is also the second cow-related death in this region in the last three years. Austria cows are rising up against us you know the animal thunderdome is going to the next level when we got cows coming at us i mean a cow it wasn't gourd right it wasn't a bull this was just like a regular cow it was like a one cow. minute one minute it's milking getting milked next minute it just decides somebody's trying to walk through my pasture i'm gonna wreck them i don't know you get trampled by a cow that seems like really bad luck head on I'm a swivel got to keep your head on a swivel now around cows even Animal Thunderdome action. That's Jason Martin. Final hour of the show coming up. We've got Melanie Collins. You're going to want to hear her. CBS uh, reporter. Also the fiance of James Neal of the Nashville Predators as we get ready for game five. We're also, I am in LA tomorrow for a bunch of advertiser meetings, so I'm not going to be on the air. So we're doing I Hate You, Clay Travis in the final hour of today's show. So in about 30 minutes, you can load up the phone lines. I Hate You, Clay Travis will be going on. I will not be on tomorrow dry your tears i know i'll be in la doing advertiser meetings and looking for the culprit of the lebron james racist graffiti incident i will not rest until that man is brought to justice oh, oh, oh. 
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.